This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The people at KPMG make the difference for their clients. Talented teams leveraging the right technology to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity. KPMG teams together with their clients working shoulder to shoulder with them to help grow and transform their enterprise. Are you ready to make the difference together? Go to visit.kpmg.us backslash transformation to learn more. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Battleground with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. Well, the headline story this week is, of course, the downing of a Russian transport plane inside Russia, northeast of Belgorod. There were no survivors. This, it seems, was a tragic error by Ukraine because on board were 65 captured Ukrainian soldiers who were on their way to being exchanged for Russian prisoners of war. Meanwhile, in Israel, the political aftershocks of the invasion of Gaza are intensifying with a former prime minister, Ehud Barak, turning on Benjamin Netanyahu for his handling of the crisis and stating boldly something we've been saying all along, that Israel's stated war aims are unachievable and, at some stage, a deal will have to be done with Hamas if the 130 or so hostages they are holding are to be freed. We'll be talking about that and the wider tensions bubbling in the region, But first of all, what do we know about the shooting down of that Russian plane, Patrick? Well, there was some confusion when the initial reports came in yesterday with the Russians claiming that the passengers on board the aircraft were Ukrainian POWs on their way to freedom in one of the prisoner swaps that have occurred regularly since the war began. I think there have been 49 so far involving 2,800 people. Uh, The Ukrainians responded by cautioning news media against putting out unverified information. But last night, in a video address to the nation, President Zelensky tacitly admitted that the Aleutian 76 was shot down by a Ukrainian missile. Now, he accused the Russians of, quote, playing with the lives of Ukrainian prisoners, with the feelings of their relatives and with the emotions of our society, unquote. And he called for a full inquiry to establish the facts Well, Ukrainian intelligence claims it was not told of the flight to ensure that no attacks were made on the airspace corridor that the Aleutian was flying through, as had been done on previous occasions. As well as the prisoners, there were six crew and two escorts on board who also died. Now, what do you think was going on here, Saul? Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? Uh, Pretty grim, too. Uh, And also, we can speculate, I think, Patrick, can't we, on how the plane was actually shot down, because it was almost certainly taken out with a missile that was probably supplied by Western sources, which is going to irritate America, UK, whoever it was uh, that supplied this missile. But, But let's go back to the claims that the prisoners were on board. I mean, It's interesting that the Institute for the Study of War is still sitting on the fence over this. Its overnight assessment actually added the claim uh, to some of the things you've been saying, Patrick, 
in Ukrainska Pravda, that's uh, Ukrainian truth, that the plane was transporting S-300 air defense missiles, which Russian forces frequently use in strikes against ground targets in Kharkiv or Blast. But its overall assessment was it couldn't really make one. It, it offered no assessment of the circumstances of the crash at this time and cannot independently verify Russian or Ukrainian statements on the incident. So we're going to have to wait on that. Another interesting tidbit from Joe Barnes in the Daily Telegraph that cautions, I think quite rightly, taking Russia's claims at face value. If Russia really wanted to prove Ukraine had indeed downed a jet with its own prisoners of war on, writes Barnes, it could easily have published video or pictures showing the Ukrainians boarding the aircraft. And he goes on to point out a couple of other things that might suggest Moscow's claims are futile. So the jury is still definitely out. I mean, there is going to be a statement later today, I think, Patrick, possibly uh, tomorrow, from the Ukrainians that might clarify this, but we'll see. Now, this is inevitably going to have an effect on civilian morale, isn't it? Which already It's already being tested with the ongoing campaign that Russia is waging against Ukrainian cities. On Tuesday, 18 people were killed and 130 were injured in multiple attacks on urban areas. Now, this is all kind of Putin making good on the threat issued earlier this month that he was uh, going to batter Ukraine. There's a kind of new way of doing it, isn't there? There seems to be a sort of adjustment in the so-called strike packages that, that they send over. You know a bit about that, don't you, Saul? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Well, up till now, they've also been typically using them in conjunct these packages, which are kind of mixture of cruise and ballistic missiles, which are designed, of course, to overwhelm the Ukrainian air defences, but also to get them to use up their precious ammunition What's unusual about these latest strikes is that they were not used in concert with Iranian Shahid drones, which normally make up part of the package. Now, the Ukrainian air defences did shoot down a large number of these incoming missiles, but the fact remains some will always get through and did on this occasion. So overall, it comes down to staying power, and staying power depends on essentially limitless supplies of ammunition of all sorts, from artillery shells to sophisticated missiles and drones, And we know this is a desperate problem for the Ukrainians. Zelensky himself has been issuing a continuous stream of appeals, and it appears that the message is finally getting through because a couple of days ago, NATO concluded contracts for the purchase of over 200,000 artillery shells, which will either be used to uh, stockpile NATO or allow it to send additional shells to Ukraine, of course. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg stated that the war in Ukraine has become a battle for ammunition. So it seems he's finally got the message. Yeah. Well, you, you get the sense that there's um, a certain urgency about all this because, of course, of the upcoming US elections. So another victory for Donald Trump in the New Hampshire primary. There's a lot about this later on in the second half, so I won't dwell on it too much uh, here. We've got quite a lot of stick, I have to say, from some of our <laughs> listeners about our interpretation of, of Trump's progress in the uh, in the primaries. So you know the great uh, the great known unknown is what will uh, if there is a Trump victory, what will he do vis a vis Ukraine? You've got some commentators like Boris Johnson saying that he trusts Trump on Ukraine. Um, now this will we're going to be talking about that as well later, but uh, it's quite a rash thing to say if Johnson doesn't uh, actually have some information to back that up. But to get back to those missiles, what this uh, renewed Russian assault on population centers tells me, Salt, is that Putin really is doubling down on the war. And this talk coming from supposedly realist 
commentators that it's time for Ukraine to abandon its maximalist goals and seek peace is totally unrealistic. Uh, there's some reports coming out of Moscow uh, that uh, Putin is so confident that, that he can ride this one out that he's going to make the upcoming election in March essentially a referendum on the war. Now, this is possible because it seems that there will be uh, an anti-war candidate standing, and this is a guy called Boris Nadezhdin. He's a veteran politician. He's 60 years old, and he's running for the center-right Civic Initiative Party. Now, he calls himself a, quote, principled opponent of Putin's policies uh, in his campaign literature. And he's openly calling for an end of the war. Uh, he promises to end mobilization, return Russian soldiers home, and free political prisoners if he's elected. He's attracted a lot of genuine support. There's a lot of imagery of people queuing up in Moscow and all over Russia, actually, queuing up for hours outside his campaign offices to add their signatures to endorse his candidacy. Now, this is something you've got to do according to the rules set by the Central Election Com Commission. They require 100,000 signatures before you can actually be considered eligible to run. Now, all this sounds fine and dandy, quite encouraging, in fact. I mean, there's a, a view that just by supporting his candidacy and Adishtin's candidacy, you're, it's essentially a sort of anti-war protest in itself. But there are some who see Nadezhin as a uh, not the kind of white knight uh, that he appears at, at first sight, but in fact a Kremlin stooge. Now, of course, Russian politics is a very conspiratorial arena, so we should take this with a pinch of salt, perhaps. But some critics are saying that uh, he's being allowed to run by Putin's people, so as to appear to give the electorate a genuine say in what's going on, an alternative to the incumbent, and uh, the election thus becomes a way of expressing your support for the war or otherwise. Now, given the state's iron grip on the media, uh, Nadezhdin will inevitably attract only a derisory vote, I would have thought. And the election result in March, which will inevitably be a handsome victory for Putin, can then be presented as a rollicking endorsement of the war. I personally think, based on no direct knowledge, I have to admit, uh, that he is genuine, Nadezhdin. He's got the backing, for example, of the movement of jailed dissident Alexei Navalny. Anyway, it's going to be fascinating to see if the Kremlin does allow him to run. Yeah, it will be fascinating. And I agree with you. I think he is genuine, Patrick. I mean, the Navalny endorsement is, is you know, pretty key evidence. But also, it's a risky game if he's a stooge that he's being allowed to, you know, stir up or not stir up, but attract the support of people who are obviously anti-war. I mean, you know, already this is a bad look for Putin. He may win the election, but a lot of people are going to have had a chance to express their opinions before then. And that's dangerous for him. And, you know, if you add to that, it, it's interesting to speculate how long it'll be before the death toll on the battlefield and the lack of progress on the battlefield make any claims that the war is progressing literally unbelievable, even in a media environment as tightly policed as the information space in Russia. I say this because our friends at the ISW are reporting that Russian mill bloggers complaining about the lack of movement on the battlefield as Russian forces struggle to deal with Ukrainian drone and rear area strikes that are making it impossible for them to break out of their fixed positions. One prominent mill blogger stated a few days ago that commanders need to figure out how to unfreeze the battlefield because at the moment they're unable to concentrate troops in numbers sufficient to break through Ukrainian lines 
because Ukrainian forces strike all forces larger than a battalion's strength. They go on to claim that Ukrainians can target sizable enemy groups even in near rear areas, admitting that they can hit even smallish groups of one to two infantry companies and 10 armoured vehicles with drone strikes, which all of which makes it impossible for the Russians to even reach Ukrainian forward defensive lines. That in turn restricts operations to attacks for much more than 10 to 20 dismounted infantry with armoured vehicles supporting, and all of this at an extreme distance behind the infantry. The other big concern the Russians have at the moment is the success the Ukrainians seem to be having in destroying oil depots in Russia itself. On Wednesday evening, an oil terminal in Russia's Krasnodar region on the Black Sea was blown up in an apparent Ukrainian drone strike. But this is the fifth attack on oil depots in Russia this month, including one incredibly in St. Petersburg, which is more than 700 miles from Ukraine's northern border. This is all part of a combined effort to hamper Russia's war effort, embarrass Putin, and to bring the war to the doorsteps of Russians. And all of this seems to be working. Yes, all very interesting. Now let's move on to Israel and Gaza, where for me, the key developments have been off the battlefield. Israel's ex-Prime Minister Ehud Barak has taken aim at the current Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, calling for an immediate election to end the war in Gaza. Now, Barak said Israel will find itself, quote, sinking in the Gaza mud for years to come if Netanyahu keeps hold of power. He speaks with huge authority, Barak. He's uh, a former chief of the general staff and Israel's most decorated soldier. I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, Saul, but I think he was one of the planners, chief planners for the Entebbe raid. But he's also the man who in 2000 uh, shook hands with Yasser Arafat at the Camp David peace summit overseen by President Bill Clinton to try and bring about an end to the Israel-Palestine conflict. So he's a genuine striver for peace. And so when he calls on Netanyahu to resign, as he has, it means the pressure on Bibi, as he's uh, known to his supporters, uh, is really ramping up. So Barak believes that Netanyahu is clinging on to power when he should have stood down in the wake of the military and intelligence failures that triggered the October 7th attacks. And he concluded, Israel cannot announce victory without destroying the military and the governing capabilities of Hamas. But for Hamas to win, it just needs to survive. And even if Israel kills uh, Yahya Sinwar, the Hamas leader, they will still survive. So without blowing our own trumpet too loudly, Saul, we have been saying this all along, haven't we, that it's an unwinnable war, at least on the terms that Netanyahu and his cohort have set for it. Now, without naming names, I see that some commentators who three, three months ago were announcing that Hamas was finished and are belatedly in agreement with us. Okay, that's enough of the pats on the back. But on a related subject, more airstrikes by the US and the UK on the Houthi positions in Yemen. Uh, some critics are saying that these strikes ultimately don't achieve much because the Houthis' uh, military capabilities are pretty developed. A lot of their kit and their uh, headquarters and communications, all the rest of it are underground. So these sort of operations don't really degrade their ability to carry on disrupting shipping in the Red Sea. So you know, their argument is that this is also an unwinnable war by the way, there's an interesting question from Martin in France, which takes me to task for my views on the Houthis, uh, but I'll address that later. In the meantime, what are your thoughts about what's going on there, Saul? 
Yeah, I rather agree with you, Patrick. I'm always wary that any campaign, any sort of military effort can be won by air power alone. I mean, we've spoken, haven't we, but many times about the attempt to do that in the Second World War. We've also gone back to 2006, the Lebanon War, where the Israeli Air Force thought it could do the job itself. And of course, they eventually had to send troops in. So you really, the last thing you want is that America, the UK and some of the other Uh, supporting allies get drawn into uh, a war in Yemen with actual boots on the ground. Um, And the problem is, if these airstrikes don't work, there will be more pressure for us to ramp up the effort. So should we have gone there in the first place? Who knows? I mean, it was to be fair to the Americans and the UK and some of their supporting friends, not France, interestingly enough, who are staying well out of this, probably sensibly. But uh, to be fair to them, civilian shipping was being affected by these Houthi strikes and something had to be done. Absolutely. Okay, that's it for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be answering listeners' questions. And among their main concerns is inevitably the Donald. Welcome back. Well, as I mentioned, um, among the main things preying on the minds of our listeners this week is what does the apparently unstoppable progress of Donald Trump towards winning the Republican nomination mean for all of us, really, for America, for the world, and for our particular concerns, uh, Ukraine and Gaza. Now, we've had a real bundle of questions here. Uh, Jack Spellman, Kevin, Callum, Paul from Santa Fe, and others all making the same point, which is that we are getting ahead of ourselves in saying that uh, Donald Trump is not only going to get the Republican nomination, but he's going to win in the November election. I don't remember it stating it quite that strongly, but clearly that was the message you got from us. I'll just read out one here from Jack, Jack Spellman. He says, hi, Battleground folks. I'm a big fan of the the podcast, enjoying all its iterations. That's good to hear because um, we're we're really interested in hearing what you think about Battleground 44. We're we're loving doing it. We just hope you're enjoying it as much as we are. And Jack says, I do have a quibble about the January 18th episode. Uh, I believe you're overstating the likelihood of Trump's winning this fall's presidential election based on the showing in the Iowa caucus. Now, there's been a lot of number crunching uh, from our listeners. So I'll just deal with this one, which gives you a flavor of what people are saying, that Trump received just over 50% support in a caucus of Iowa Republicans is not especially predictive of how he's likely to do in the general election. I agree that he's on odds on favorite to win the GOP nomination, but I'd grade his chances of winning in November at well under 50%. He's lost the popular vote twice, both times pretty badly, barely won the Electoral College in 2016 and lost it decisively in 2020, and so on. So final point he makes, with the US economy rebounding and Biden able to frame Trump's election as an existential threat to democracy, I do believe Trump faces an uphill battle. So there's a lot more in that vein. So, I mean, my first thoughts on on all this, Saul, is that, uh, well, I think we've got to put our hands up and say, we're not experts on on American politics. And <laughs> I would also say that Brits generally find it very hard to understand Trump, even after all these years. And, you know, each uh, encounter with him, just he just gets more and more bizarre to my eyes. I was watching his post-New Hampshire victory speech, 
Now, it was sort of rambling, vindictive, spiteful, you know, personal attacks on Nikki Haley, uh, who's, you know, a fellow Republican, complete absence of any sort of grace or manners. So just loads of infantile jibes. He always strikes me, and I think a lot of other people, as a, you know, essentially a narcissist. Um, but there's one thing that really stands out. You know, someone like Trump, Trump himself would never succeed in any theatre of European politics. It's just unthinkable that someone that bizarre, that self-centered, that so obvious, so obviously focused on his own interests would get anywhere. So forgive us, listeners, uh, and particularly American <laughs> listeners, if we do have difficulty getting our heads around Trump. I think Brits do feel that given the uh, bizarre nature of US politics, from our perspective at least, anything, absolutely anything is possible. And therefore, given the polls at the moment, there's you know a good he's, he's a couple of points ahead over Biden there is a good chance that Trump will be in the White House next year. I can understand perfectly why Kevin and Jack, etc., shudder at the thought. But, um, you know, the lesson is never say never when it comes to Trump. And uh, Kevin, I think, said he'd bet me a penny uh, that uh, (laughs) an American, shiny American penny, if Trump does win. Well, you know, I'm I'm very happy to lose that particular bet, Kevin, and hand over one of our own shiny uh, British pennies to you. But they seem to have disappeared from circulation, don't they? Yeah, I think you're being a little bit over optimistic, Patrick, in saying that it couldn't, you know, we couldn't have a Trump in Europe. I mean, we we got you know on the rise a lot of sort of populist leaders in Italy, um, but more alarmingly in places like Slovakia. And Hungary, as we've already discussed. I mean, interesting on the just on the Hungary front for a second, it does appear that Orban has finally let go his objections to Sweden joining NATO, which is something. But we've certainly got some, you know, bizarre leaders akin to a Trump in the in Europe too. I, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, and I was thinking more in terms of the sort of presentational thing that uh, they still have to kind of frame themselves as sort of proper politicians, if you like, don't they? They're not allowed to kind of ramble on for for ad nauseum, striking out at real and imagined enemies. Basically, you know, it's a one man show, isn't it? People like Marine Le Pen, uh, people like Viktor Orban, you know, they 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 are recognisable sort of conventional politicians in the way they present themselves. Anyway, I think that's. That's really the thing. Whereas a um, figure as outlandish as Donald Trump, I think, would find it hard to get any traction, but uh, who knows. Simon Hearn, he's in the UK, says, a while ago you talked about the beginning of a second front, the Ukrainians taking the war to the Russians with drone and missile launches, uh, getting as far as Moscow and St. Petersburg. Well, you just mentioned St. Petersburg, didn't you? So that was an amazing uh, feat to get a missile that far. And Simon says, if the current ground war is a relative stalemate, everything that Lieutenant General Kirilo Budanov, he's, of course, the head of uh, Ukrainian military intelligence, everything he's doing to attack inside Russia has the potential to get the Russian public worried. I assume more would be going on if they had the right number of high-quality drones and missiles needed to expand this front. Now, Simon's point is that uh, Russian wives and mothers persuaded the Russian leadership to get out of Afghanistan with, I believe, 15,000 dead. If the current Russian war debt is 200,000, the amalgam of dead husbands and sons and homes and infrastructure being hit might well get them to put pressure on again. What are your views? What are your views, Saul? 
Yeah, I agree with him. I think it is all having an effect. Um, as I as I said earlier, Patrick, I mentioned the fact that they actually drones rather than missiles are getting as far as St. Petersburg. But it's astonishing to think that they can get a drone to travel that distance, seven hundred miles, or possibly have them launched from within Russia, which is even more concerning for the Russians that they're not able to take out these sort of special operations units, these effectively partisans within Russia. But either way, they are hitting really effective, real targets and destroying a lot of oil by these strikes. And Simon's right to point out that the number of dead is slowly but surely going to have an effect on the Russian public. And it also already seems that it is. I mean, you mentioned the point that a lot of people are signing up the Russian opposition to Putin. Uh, and I've already made my comments on on how dangerous that is, I think, for him. But this ties in with another question, actually, has come from another Simon. He doesn't say where he's from, so probably UK who actually asked about the successes that Ukraine's had in the Black Sea. So what we're really talking about here is moving away from the static battlefield and moving into both naval uh, and long-distance warfare. And there again, the Ukrainians seem to have been having uh, a lot of success. Simon makes the point, we hear little comment on what he sees as the great success in the Black Sea, where there are no clear lines. Ukraine has established routes for ships to operate in to and from southeast Ukraine and have effectively forced Russian naval units to withdraw from Sevastopol. I mean, whenever I mention this, people seem to think, well, you know, you're just clutching at straws. You're you're desperately trying to, you know, make it seem that the Ukrainians are having some success. But we shouldn't underestimate how significant this all is, both for the Ukrainian economy, but also for the loss of face, frankly, for the Russians and their ability to protect Crimea. So, you know, we have moved from our position where we thought that there would be a major breakthrough last year to understanding that Ukraine has to use other methods to uh, degrade Russia's capability and, frankly, willingness to keep fighting this war. So it's not over yet by a very long chalk. And what's going on in the Black Sea is a very good example of how nimble, frankly, the Ukrainian military is and how it's able to pivot in terms of its strategy to where it really can hurt the Russians. I'm just going to read out one here from Nia Kozlovsky, who's in Tel Aviv uh, in Israel. He says, hi, guys, never miss your pods and kudos for the 1944 series. Well, that's good to hear, Nev. Um, That's exactly the sort of reaction we were hoping for. On that point, he says, I'd like to suggest an episode on how the Allies tried or didn't try to save the Jews in 1944, especially Hungarian Jews. Well, that is a very fascinating and rich subject, and uh, we will definitely be addressing that. I've got someone in mind actually who can talk about it brilliantly. That's my old friend, Adam Labor who is himself, his antecedents were Hungarian Jews. But Nia goes on, I do want to start another debate. Donald Trump, here we go again. Uh, I think that your view of him is way too simplistic, but not that I think any good of him, but he is completely unpredictable in all ways. First, he likes winners. Just remember how he treated John McCain. This is, of course, a reference to when he was debating John McCain or John McCain's name came up, that his Democratic uh, rival. He said, I don't, uh, McCain, of course, had been uh, captured during the, the Vietnam War. And he said, I prefer people who aren't taken prisoner to people who are or something along those lines, basically denigrating a war hero, a genuine war hero, whereas he himself, of course, hadn't gone anywhere near Vietnam. So uh, Nier asks, how would Trump treat Zelensky if Ukraine launched a successful attack near the elections? And he points out uh, all the flip-flops Trump's done over the years. Uh, He changed course with both China, 
and Iran, and points out, you know, as I mentioned last week, that it was Trump who actually, having said that America was going to steer clear of all foreign entanglements, who actually took the very bold step of um, assassinating or ordering the assassination of General Soleimani, the the leader of the Revolutionary Guards, kind of overseas operations, essentially. So he concludes, while Trump will most likely be quite a menace to NATO, I'm not sure about anything else. He says, finishes up by saying, while I believe Trump is not fit for anything, I still believe he is a more empathetic person than our Prime Minister Netanyahu, who most Israelis see as a psychopath. Okay, well, thanks for that, Nia. Well, as I said in the first half, your views about Trump's possible performance on the international stage actually rather chimes with what Boris Johnson was saying in a comment piece. It's the regular one he writes for the British Daily Mail. And it was headlined, a Trump presidency could be just what the world needs. Now, Johnson's argument is that it was Donald Trump who gave the Ukrainians javelin anti-tank weapons, which together with the UK uh, NLAW missiles and other kit uh, was so valuable to the Ukrainians in the battle for Kiev. And it was at least partly thanks to that decision by Trump that the Ukrainians were able to stun the world and send Putin's armies scuttling from the Ukrainian capital. So Johnson goes on, whatever they now say about President Trump, I cannot believe that he will want to go down in history as the president who abandoned a country that he had already signally helped to keep free. I simply cannot believe that Trump will ditch the Ukrainians. On the contrary, having worked out, as he surely has, that there is no deal to be done with Putin, I reckon there is a good chance that he will double down and finish what he started by giving them what they need to win. Well, let's let's hope that's right. But I, I would say I've been rather rude about uh, Donald Trump earlier. That's more about uh, as much about his presentation, about his style as his content, because, I mean, Trump has did actually do that. We've got to remember that. And he did actually stand up to the Iranians. So, you know, you, you absolutely never know what Trump is going to do next. So I think that's the only certainty in, in this situation is that we really don't have a clue. Uh, how he's going to, uh, we really don't have a clue uh, what sort of foreign policy he's going to advance if indeed he does get to the White House. And, you know, I would even venture to say he probably doesn't know himself. Okay, Therese from Norway has written in. Uh, She says she's been listening to the podcast for a year now, but this is the first time she's directly contacted us. And what's encouraged her to do so is the recent episode when we talked about the fact, well, this was interesting because it was information that come in to us rather than that we had discovered ourselves, that Ukraine wasn't allowed to program Storm Shadow scout missiles in advance, but rather this was done by the British and French to make sure that certain targets were hit. Now, we haven't actually had verification of this, but let's just say for the sake of argument that it's possible. And what's really irritating Therese is that this is just another example of the West basically supplying weapons, but um, making sure that Ukraine has one hand tied behind its back, the sort of point that Phil O'Brien's been making for a long time. I mean, she goes on to say, I can only imagine the effect a combined storm shadow, ATACMS, decoys, harm strike would have if we were allowed to actually take out the Kerch Bridge, for example. And her question is this, how can Western politicians claim to be supporting Ukraine in their existential struggle, and yet at the same time sit on the fence for long enough to help Russia prepare 
against that support. I mean, she's talking about the fact that we took so long to give them main battle tanks and other weapons that actually they were able to use that time to build the very effective Sorovkin uh, defensive system. I can only imagine where the front line would be if Ukraine was able to bring Western main battle tanks and AFVs into play, if that's armored fighting vehicles, into play before the Sorovkin line was built, or if the Kerch Bridge took, as she puts it, a face full of missiles a year ago. In her view, it's shameful. Well, we agree. Um, we, we've been saying this for a long time, Therese. We absolutely feel that, you know, this drip feeding of missiles, and it's still happening now. I mean, F-16s, for goodness sake. We were talking six months ago about the likelihood of them getting to Ukraine and, you know, still no sign. We actually had a question about F-16s. Someone saying, well, actually, is there any point in sending them? I personally think there is. Yes, they need to have long-range missiles too, but F-16s are going to make a difference when they get there. Meanwhile, as we've also said this week, Ukraine is doing what it can to degrade uh, Russian capabilities much further afield. And it's doing this pretty effectively, in my view. Uh, Alistair has a uh, a possible answer to a question that's been puzzling me. I've been mentioning the number of uh, responses we've been getting from southern the Southern Hemisphere. And Alistair says, I hear your surprise at the unusual volume of questions and contributions from the Anzac countries. Bear in mind, it's the summer holiday season down here. We all have more time on our hands at the moment. Cheers from the Sunshine Coast, north of Brisbane. We could certainly do with some sunshine where I am right now. I don't know what it's like down at Somerset. But okay, thanks for clearing that up, Alistair. That does sound like a possible explanation. Okay, moving on to Gaza and Yemen. We've had a, a pretty concerning email from Ori Chilman, who's in the UK. And he's really asking the effect this war is going to have not specifically on the way the state of Israel is seen by the rest of the world, because I think the answer to that is pretty obvious, but for the possibility that anti-Semites will be emboldened. He writes, as a Jew myself, uh, what shocked me and continues to do so is the widespread support for this hatred, that is anti-Semitic hatred in the West. I'm sure most of this is a misguided attempt to protest the suffering in Gaza, but it's certainly true that some is not. In the UK, he says, the marches the day after the 7th of October were, in his view, pretty clearly anti-Semitic. And it's true that this goes largely unchallenged by those who claim to stand with the oppressed and against racism and hatred. His question is, what do you think the effects of the war and its fallout will be on the Jewish diaspora and their relationship to their host nations in the medium to long term. I appreciate you are not historians of the Jewish people, but you are historians of conflict and its effect on people. And you have proved terribly insightful in this regard too, both in your writings and in uh, and in this podcast. Well, wh what's your feeling about this, Patrick? Well, first of all, Aurea, I think you shouldn't uh, infer too much from media reports of these marches. I think I mentioned before, I went to one of the early ones uh, to see for myself, and I saw no placards, I heard no chants calling for the destruction of Israel or anti-Jewish sentiment. Uh, it was simply demanding a free Palestine, which is a uh, you know, perfectly reasonable demand endorsed by the majority of world opinion. Uh, there were old people there, there were young people there, there were families with kids and strollers. Certainly it was not the sinister mob that I read about uh, described in reports in the right-wing press the following day. There have been, of course, there have been incidents of anti-Jewish graffiti, of Orthodox Jews being insulted in the street in London the other day, which is shameful. But I would say the overwhelming majority of British people, all but a tiny, tiny handful, 
make a distinction between being Jewish and the policies of the uh, very right-wing government of Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, I'm only speaking about Britain here. When I lived in France, it wasn't uncommon to see swastikas sprayed outside synagogues that no one even bothered to clean off. But I don't think that we're going to see a return to the old European-style anti-Semitism. I mean, for one thing, the European right, the far right, sees itself often as a natural ally of Israel under its current leadership. Uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary, he is or was a great ally of Netanyahu. Gerd Wilders, the far-right Dutch politician who did very well in the recent elections, is a huge supporter of Israel. What I would say is that the problem is more likely uh, to come from Islamic extremists in Europe. Okay, and finally, we have uh, an email from Martin in France, and he's taking us to task for our, our comments about the Houthis. Uh, Patrick, he writes, who normally speaks well on Gaza, Israel, said that the Houthis were attacking shipping in the Red Sea and with only an obscure connection to Gaza. This isn't true, says Martin. The Houthis have said that they are attacking especially Israeli and U.S. shipping and shipping bound for Israel in order to put pressure on USA-supported Israel to stop the daily massacre of Gazan civilians. There is nothing obscure about this. Come on, Patrick, you are better than that. Um, what's, your, what's your response to that, Patrick? Well, it's interesting. He says they're attacking especially Israeli and U.S. shipping. I'd like to know how they can actually tell. <laughs> so basically, they're attacking anything that goes through that they can get a missile on as far as I can see. Okay, if it happens to be Israeli or American, so much the better from their point of view. But, well, Martin, thanks for getting in touch. I appreciate your point. But uh, try as I might, I can't really see the Houthis as anything other than a malevolent force in the area. There's been a tendency, uh, if you don't mind me saying, to romanticize them and present what they're doing as a principled attempt to bring some relief to the Palestinians in Gaza. Now, like any decent person, I want the war to end immediately and the shedding of innocent blood to stop. But I don't think, uh, in all honesty, that the Houthis are impelled by such noble motives. I mean, for one thing, they are, to some extent, tools of Iran, not so much as Hezbollah in Lebanon, admittedly. And they have actually shown some reluctance uh, in the past to follow Tehran's uh, wishes. But basically, they owe their success to the weaponry they get from the Revolutionary Guards. Now, for another thing, I I think it's, it's wrong to characterize them as freedom fighters. I mean, they oppress their own people, the ones they're supposedly liberating. They've, after taking over Sana'a uh, a decade or so ago, they uh, then extended their control over much of northern Yemen, causing a humanitarian disaster. There are more than 20 million people, and 80% of Yemenis are without food or basic services. And, uh, you know, their conduct is pretty disgraceful in many respects. A UN report last year huge UN report, 305-page report on Yemen, accused uh, one of their leaders, of uh, a guy called Al-Mutada, of severely abusing captives in, a, in the main uh, prison camp, uh, security camp, it's called the Central Security Camp in Sana'a, which he personally controls. And uh, this treatment resulted in the deaths of detainees and lasting injuries, etc., etc. The report concluded prisoners are systematically subjected to torture and other forms of cruel and human or degrading treatment. So, you know, it's not just the Houthis are doing this. It must be said the Saudis and the UAE, the, the Houthis have been fighting. When they take prisoners, they treat them just as badly. But all I'm saying really is that the Houthis are not, in my view, angels. 
and uh, they're, they're posing a threat to innocent shipping going through the through the uh, Red Sea. Uh, so, as far as I can see, although we I think we both agree, Saul and I, that this military action is not going to completely end the threat. It might actually put the Houthis back in their box for a, a while, which is no bad thing. Yeah, well said, Patrick. Okay, that's all we have time for. Do join us next Wednesday for another episode of Battleground 44, which, as Patrick says, we're enjoying making immensely, not least because the comments about the Second World War are generally not quite as divisive as some we get on Ukraine and Gaza. And also on Friday, of course, for our latest roundup of current conflict and also when we'll be answering listeners' questions. I'd just like to flag up the next episode. I've just done an interview with uh, Anna Reid about the siege of Leningrad, which I say to myself is a cracker. So do listen out for that. Goodbye. Goodbye.